just always be always be yourself mm. that's, the, that's the, the biggest lesson I would say just always be you heartlessly On today's podcast, I'm joined by the founder of Breathalution, Kevin O'Neill. Since 2019, Kev has helped thousands of people with their overall well-being and unlocking new parts of themselves through breathwork and cold water. This episode is up there with one of my favorites for sure. It's a really honest and open conversation about mental health, getting the best out of yourself and deciding when it's time to change. The topics we cover are Kevin's story, stopping alcohol and why he stops alcohol, how you can process trauma dopamine and what it is, the benefits of nasal breathing, the benefits of cold water, what's holding most people back, mental health, lessons learnt, and what we can do to start this practice. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. The man who saved me, that was on your Instagram today. Someone posted that to you. I think it was someone called David. He posted on your Instagram and he said, the man who saved me. How does someone saying that about you make you feel? Well, um, that's a, that's an opener. Um, it, it 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 kind of underpins really why I keep doing this, uh, really, and and I've had ups and downs with it, and you know not everybody takes to it as you would expect, um, but I've you know I've received messages like that several times. You know that two hours I spent with you saved my life, and um, you know the time that I spent with you, you know, has managed to save my life. So. Uh, it means everything to me, you know. And if I won the lottery tomorrow, Tom, I'd still be doing it. So, really? Yeah, 100%. I'd still be down at the pod and I'd still be taking people through the process because it does, does it save lives, save mine. When we were messaging the other day to arrange a time for this this podcast, and you, you said you you were really busy um, because there are so many people out there that, that need help. And you're putting your services out there that are affordable to people because you want to help so many people. So I guess I want to go back to the start, really. So what started you on this journey? Who has cared before this? Um, well, well, basically, um, I was I was struggling with alcohol for a long time. You know, going further back, I, I struggled with ADHD, uh, asthmatic all my life. I always had breathing problems. I smoked and you know, and I did that sort of stuff. But the alcohol really sort of ruled my life for, for near enough probably 18 years wow. that I kind of, you know, got stuck into to booze and not just alcohol, you know, cocaine as well, uh, and a, a addiction in general, you know. So dopamine, the thing, you know, the thing that we just spoke about briefly off record then, um, which we're probably going to cover anyway, but I was constantly spiralling all the time with, with, with alcohol and addiction. And I wasn't always a reliable husband or father um, during that 18-year sort of period. Um, but then, you know, something happened in my life. I, I, I realised that things had to change. I was putting weight on and uh, my health was sort of deteriorating. I was drinking a lot um, and it was costing a lot of money. And it was costing a lot of relationships, time. And, um, yeah, it was, it, it was not good. So I literally... Um, sort of stumbled across uh, Wim Hof, you know, quite a long time before mm. I stopped drinking. Um, and, I was, and I read some of his book. I didn't read all of it, but I was fascinated by it. Um, and just as sort of Wim Hof was coming to the forefront, you know, sort of beginning of, you know, in between sort of lockdown sort of time, mm. I, I lay on my deck in and I did some, I did some breath work. 
And uh, I did some Wim Hof breathing and it was uh, phenomenal. And I thought, what is that that can change the body so quickly? Um, mm. And to be honest, I was emotional. I cried. And I thought, wow, what, what's this? I thought, you know, why am I? I don't even know why I'm upset. Mm. Um, but it just kind of, I think, just briefly while I was holding my breath in there, I just saw Kev again, you know. Um, it was interesting. And then I got in the call with a friend, Sam Murray, after that, and um, and, it, and it all just kicked off from that. I started to take people in the reservoir and uh, witness how they were breathing and how they were reacting to the cold and thought that there must be a way to hopefully try and control that. And that's what I found. What led you to start drinking, do you think? Well, I think um, what led me to start drinking was 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 my trauma, was my past um, and my confusion about who I was and, and, and in fact in some cases a little bit of afraid to see who I was so I kind of searched for dopamine really and, and chemicals to try and sort of keep me away from self a little bit I think now because I've, I've studied this for the last sort of three years and I've read so much and seen you know near as damn it probably 2,000 people in three years wow. um, and uh, some of it group sessions, some of it, some, quite a lot of it one-to-one. -one. So I've got to listen to a lot of trauma and witnessed a lot of other people's trauma whilst going through trauma of my own. Um, but the answer to your question is, is that the reason I drank was really for those dopamine hits mm. um, of, of trying to you know get away from self. What was that transition period like from, from drinking regularly to then having to confront th those traumas? And it, took, it took quite a while, really, and I went through so much. You know, I went. I asked. I started to ask some questions, really. That's what it was. And I thought, you know, what's what's life all about? And I looked at religion, and I was brought up as a Catholic. Um, so I'd, I'd already sort of read, you know, uh, you know, quite a lot of the Bible. Um, so I was I was asking questions. I got to a certain age. I was asking some questions. When I got to about forty, um. I think it was about 40, I started to sort of think, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's life all about? I started asking those sort of mid-life sort of questions. You know, why am I here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and eventually, yeah, I was, you know, I, I was trying to get away from the booze even then because I realised it wasn't doing me any good. And, you know, I did some interesting things. You know, I embraced Islam and I became a, I became a, a Muslim, you know, for a short period of time. There was no alcohol involved with being a Muslim. I prayed mm. in mosques with some beautiful, absolutely beautiful human beings. Um, and, you know, I went into synagogues. And I, I was curious. I went into Buddhist temples and prayed. And I went all over the place, Tom, you know, trying to find me. Yeah. Eventually just found it in the quiet, you know, in my breath, holding my breath. There, there he is. That's where all the answers were for me. And science, obviously, which is probably what we're talking about a bit. Mm. <laughs> you said before there was a period or a, a, a turn in, in in your life where you realised that you needed to change. What was that? I think it was, um, it was probably an accumulation of things, really. Uh, one, I was, you know, was constantly sort of, you know, excuse my language, I was just pissing my money against the wall. Mm. Really, um, and, and wasting all my money. I never, never had anything. 
Um, we've never sort of went on any sort of decent holidays or anything like that because we never had any money because I was always drinking it. Um, but my health was was not clever, and I realised it, it wasn't in a, in a good way because um, the drink would often make me feel really poorly. And the more I drank, um, the longer it would take me to recover. Mm. So I thought from that point, I need to just do something I could just do with a bit of time off the booze. So yeah. I looked at this one year no beer thing on Instagram. Um, and uh, I thought, I'll, I'll try that. And then I thought, well, I won't try a year. A year's too too much, really, because mm. I've been drinking you know, pretty much consistently for 18 years. Mm. Um, so I thought, I'll have six months off. I uh, thought I'd try that, and um, I was already lining up the Christmas drinks. So I thought, wow, what am I doing? I'm, I'm lining up the alcoholic already, and I've not even had any time off it yet. Yeah. I'll, just do, I'll just do the year. Somebody said it could, be, could potentially be life-changing, and it, and, it, and it was. That year off booze was, was, was enough to, to change my life. What year was that? What year did I quit now? So I'm just over two years in. Just over two years without without booze now. I kind of lost count with it really now because I mm. just don't drink. Yeah. I'm just a non-drinker. So I don't really, there was a time when I was counting the days, <laughs> the minutes, the hours. <laughs> uh, but now I just um, just take it as a, as a non-drinker. But it was it, it, it was before my sister died, and that was a big turning point for me. As okay. Well. I lost my sister, Yvonne. And, no, I'm sorry. Um, in 2019. Yeah, thank you, mate. Yeah, she was only 49, Yvonne. Wow. And, you know, without sort of offending my other three sisters that are still here, she was kind of my favourite, Yvonne. Yeah. Uh, you know, and everybody would understand that because she kind of got me, really. We got mm. each other. She was always one of those ones that we could sit at a table and, and giggle uh, at each other. You know, I had a bit of a connection with Yvonne. And, um, yeah, she died in 2019. A complicated death, but there was a bit of alcohol connected to her death, too. But she'd also been through quite a lot of trauma in her life um, as a young girl and stuff. So and then all the way through teenage years, very confused and stuff. So um, which which led on eventually to her to her becoming quite poorly. Uh, but obviously, an alcohol was in, included mm-hmm. with her kind of um, illness, and eventually sepsis. Sort of, I got hold of her in hospital, and that was was massive uh, turning point for me. Mm-hmm. That really. I still drank after that um, in 2019, but it wasn't long after that I thought I'd go on a day. Mm. It was killed, and you know, I watched, uh, I watched it die, and, and, and I, you know, I, I really did think that because there was a big piece of my safety missing then, because you know, instantly, you know, the memories come back, um, the, the memories come back, uh, you know, childhood memories. That still affect me even now. You can tell, can't you? But mm. you know, um, you know, instantly, you know, she, when I was a child, you know, I was cold, and we didn't have any central eating, you know, back then. And you know, I, Yvonne, I'd always go and see Yvonne, and she just lift the quilt up all the blankets. Yeah, I mean, I'd cuddle up next to her. That makes that used to make me feel safe. It was part of my safety. So when that happened, it, it's never the same. So you know, I don't know if you've ever lost anybody, you know, that's close to you, but. When you do, you'll feel it. It's, it's part of your your safety that, that never is the same again because mm. it'll never quite be the same. 
So it's a part of your safety that's removed forever, which is why it's so difficult when you lose your mum, because she was your first safety. So, so that was a big turning point for me anyway, Tom. And I, I thought, you know, not long after that, um, I called it a day. Um, but yeah, I've never really looked back since. There have been times where I've been very close to having a drink. Yeah. Since, uh, but yeah. And, and I imagine that's that's a really hard thing to confront, especially giving up alcohol, which is that quick dopamine hit, which takes you away from what you're going through. Or it could be another form of dopamine hits because it takes you away from the reality of that moment. You know, things we've just talked about. Was that tough? Yeah, it was. Yeah. But my wife was always supportive, obviously, for obvious reasons. When I gave up drinking, she'd almost given up herself. Mm. I think just so... Um, just so relieved, really, that I'd, I'd made a stand to give up. You know, once yeah. I was sort of, you know, a few months and six months off it, which I'd been, I'd been there before with this yeah. family. You know, I've been, you know, eight, nine months without alcohol, and I, you know, I was a different person. You know, because obviously, alcohol it, it changes you mentally and physically. Um, it affects synapses in the brain. It, you know, it did change me into somebody else. I was just a bit nasty, a bit snappy, and. You know, not always there, a bit, you know, a bit lost. Yeah. And, uh, constantly consumed the drink. Um, so she was, she was really, really helpful. And it was, yeah, it was really hard. Mm. Um, you know, I, there, was, there was a period of time where I'd focus on food a lot, put quite a bit of weight back on afterwards. Uh, I was exercising, though, to try and get the dopamine from, from the exercise running. Um, but, yeah, I was eating a lot of sugary foods and stuff to compensate. Yeah. Uh, because obviously you get that dopamine hit again. <laughs> yeah, it's a big. It's why eating disorders are connected to vulnerability and and, and, um, and the past trauma. Because your instant dopamine hit is yeah. not matter once you're nourished. Um, but yeah, it was very very difficult. Now, I've recently read a book on it, and it's just it's fascinating how people are just addicted to dopamine because one, it could. It could shelter you from things that you've been through, or secondly, it could be just that bit of comfort that you're longing for. And thirdly, it's so easy. It's so easy to get it. And it's it's harder to get the natural sources of dopamine, whether it be exercising or walking or eating clean or breath work, water work, which we're going to get into now, than it is just getting that quick hit. I'm gonna I'm gonna take away. Having and there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with having a beer now and again. But if you're using it just to feel good in that that second that's where the problem lies i feel absolutely yeah that's exactly what i was doing and you know to a degree now i, I still think there's a big part of me that still that, that does it however i'm more aware of how i feel now mm. in terms of whether i whether i'm trying to sort of you know i'm giving little cues obviously as i go around the supermarket they'll be it'll be asking me for, for dopamine or i'll see dopamine on the shelves <laughs> yeah so, um, but it, it's, it's having that awareness to know yeah. that not instinctually just to go with that, go with the flow of mm. looking for that dopamine and saying, ah, okay, I got you, but thank you, but nope, not today. Mm. <laughs> go away. Monkey back in its cage and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and dealing with it differently, just sitting with it as opposed to chasing it. And it's not even in adulthood that I think dopamine hits happen with takeaways or alcohol or, or whatever it might be. I see it in younger people now, especially in my line of work where I work with younger people being a teacher. I think dopamine hits can come from anything like an iPad or a smartphone or anything like that. 
if you're distracted or you just want to take your mind somewhere else rather than sitting with it and processing a feeling or an emotion, it's straight to a phone or it's straight to an iPad to escape. And then it just translates into the future. And I worry, is it damaging resilience? Yeah, massively, massively. I think you're primary or secondary, Tom. Primary. Amazing to have a teacher switched on as you. And I think I think a lot of teachers would probably benefit from understanding, certainly from a neurolinguistic point of view as well, mm. you know, how their children are behaving and reacting and how they're kind of searching for dopamine all the time. And of course, just being, you know, having friends at school mm. and, and being in certain situations at school, you can be sort of looking for dopamine, but it's massively affecting them. And the thing is, is that we're kind of, um, we're kind of addicted to dopamine um, as, um, I don't know, as but standard from from standard because the nature of how we're born means that we get instant dopamine the minute we get back to safety as an organism. Right. And, and Charles Darwin. I know this is probably going back a little bit far, but Charles Darwin said in 1872 that the fundamental purpose of human emotions, which is connected to dopamine, obviously, is to initiate movement in the organism to get it back to safety, physical equilibrium, mm. which is the parasympathetic state. Yeah. So going from fear uh, to safety or vulnerability to safety, it's like a constant roller coaster. But the reason it's a roller coaster is because of how we we were we were brought into this world. So mm. if we're in a parasympathetic state, going back to kids, and I'll talk a little bit about ADHD as well, if you don't mind, just because of breath that's connected to that in terms of we're in the uh, in this parasympathetic state for nine months the organism hasn't really sort of you know accepted or witnessed any proper fear or vulnerability you're constantly in 55 degrees it doesn't change much depending on the temperature outside whatever it's always regulated at 50 degrees you don't even have to breathe for yourself i mean imagine as a, as a breathing animal now Imagine not having enough to breathe for yourself. You're just floating around and the sounds buffle. You're comfortable, you can hear more, you can feel how you're mm. being fed from it. Uh, you don't have to do anything for nine months, a long time, for the organism to be in the safest place that it can ever be before you die. So after nine months, you're forced through a narrow canal, which is stressful. And it's the first time the organism kind of witnesses the stress. Stress response. So, babies that are born cesarean section, they 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 bypass the stress. So, does that change the amygdala-driven fear response of that human? Scientists think potentially it does. So do I. Mm. And you tend to find sometimes a lot of time that children that have been born cesarean are quite clingy, but vulnerable because they've not had the resilience of going through the birth canal. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So you come out, you, your lungs empty of fluid, you, you <laughs> gasp for the first time, excuse me, you gasp for the first time and you take a breath. Pre-boxing the complex in the brain is witnessing this. It's an explosion of wow, breathing. It's all going on. Yeah. Well, you feel frightened. The organism feels fear at that point. So is that vulnerability? Yeah, it's vulnerability. But what happens is, is that we get an instant hit of dopamine because we're nurtured 
So by being frightened when you come out, you come back to mum here. What does she do? She feeds you. Oh, yeah. So she warms you. She feeds you. You feel safe. And you get dopamine, oxytocin. So from there, then in, the animal, the, the, the organism is in the loop. It's standard. And you put down in a cot after you latch on and then you're made to breathe through your nose. <clears throat> so you're getting nourishment, you're warm, and you're breathing through your nose. You're, you're, you're pre-boxing your complex, your brain, your breathing centers, your chemoreceptors in your body witness the nasal breathing, which is why we feel much more calmer when we breathe through our noses. That's so interesting. I've never thought of it like that. No, this is the thing. And we should examine the animal before we, you know, constantly keep going on about the human. But we're animals. And I think this is the, the most important part. This is where people are going to be able to heal and process their traumas and their past if we understand what the body is doing. So from that moment, then you put baby down once he or she has been nourished, you have the same nourishment, whether it's breast or bo bottle, there is a big difference. But you're put down in your car and you're, Shh, you, Tom wakes up in, in your car and you're vulnerable. So what do you do? Darwin said it, <laughs> emotions. <laughs> yeah. Get it back. Mum comes upstairs, dad comes upstairs, shh, 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 okay. Hmm. Hmm. Dopamine. Yeah. So on and so forth and so on and so forth until we eventually then find dopamine in brothers and sisters, friends at school. We we find dopamine in teachers that remind us of our parents, we feel safer with, partners, husbands, wives, animals. We're constantly searching for co-regulation is dopamine again mm. so we cannot escape dopamine it's a fundamental part of the fight or flight system and the parasympathetic safety system and it's understanding and learning about your own demand and need for it i suppose sorry that was a, a long-winded uh, no, not at all. And it, it leads me to the next question because there are different types of dopamine. There's there's positive and there's negative dopamine. It's the quick instant hit, or there's the the long progressive dopamine, which can last a lot longer. And um Andrew Huberman, uh that uh yeah, scientist, I guess you call him, uh, or psychologist from from America, he puts it brilliantly in his podcasts about what water can do, what cold water can do, what breath work can do for your dopamine. Um, like a cold cold shower in the morning can lift your dopamine levels by two hundred percent and prolong it rather than it crash immediately. So I wanted to ask you because of the line of work that you're in, what can breath work do and cold water exposure do for not just one's dopamine but one's overall well being? I think the most important part of this now that I didn't quite realise at the beginning was it, it, it's more about awareness mm -hmm. and awareness of how you show up in the cold. Because sometimes I get in the cold, I can get into three degrees and think, oh, this is quite nice today, this is quite comfortable. Yeah. Sometimes I get into three degrees and I'm like, and I see my shadow and I see things start to come up. And it, it's it's learning to sort of sit with the self 
and your breath, including it in, in that is your breath. Obviously, you're, when you're born, you, you, you take a first breath and then you're breathing anywhere up to sort of 30,000 times per day for the rest of your life. And then eventually you, you, you die and you cease to exist after an exhale. So you come in on an inhale, you leave on an exhale. So your breath is fundamentally the most important thing that we have that sustains us as an organism. Mm. Your breath is absolutely critical. It's the first thing you do when you come out. Then you eat. So even if we focused on breath and food and we, we got those two things right as human beings, there wouldn't be anywhere near as much ill health in the world uh, or, or obesity or, or cardiovascular disease because just those two things, in fact, the three things when you're born, breath, cold, and and food. So when you come out at 55 degrees, you're cold, even if you're in a, a hot country, I suppose. Um, you know, because a lot of the time when we go into labour at night, naturally as an animal, and it's cold at night. So human beings' skin receptors, 73% of those are cold receptors, not heat receptors, because, we, you know, we stand more of a chance of dying in the cold than we do in the sun, in the heat. But it, the, these things are vital. In terms of the evolution of mankind, you know, we've been really, really cold in the past. So if we stop or if we alter that in human beings, it's going to have a detrimental effect. We're, we're kind of changing the adaptation of the animal uh, or the ability to adapt to environment by being hot all the time. We go from you know a warm supermarket, heated, into a, you know with our North Face coats on and hats and gloves, and then we go into a nice heated steering wheel, heated seats, car with heat in it. Then we come out of the heat into the hot house, central heating system. Sometimes we're never cold at all. So what is that doing to the animal? Well, it's actually changing it from a, a genetic point of view as well. So as, as animals, we're starting to produce less brown fat, which is an organ on its own. If you look at Susanna Solberg's um, recent book and, and, and her uh, communication that she's had with Andrew Huberman, um, she talks about the, the, the importance of brown fat as this system that eats away at white fat cells in the body, which are not the good fat cells. Brown fat is a good fat to have in the body because it regulates temperature. But it doesn't just regulate temperature in the cold. It regulates your temperature in the heat too. So what I found is that when I started cold water therapy, I started to sweat less in the summer. Oh. I didn't really need to sit with a fan on in the summer. So human body is an amazing bit of kit but if we don't give it what it needs and what it's adapted to over the past you know hundreds of thousands of years or however long it is i don't really know the, the science of how long humans have been around for but whether you go back to neanderthal or ape or whatever you know if we make sort of changes to mankind it will bite us and, and that's what it's doing so as part of your work with helping people with the breath work and the cold water exposure, what's the biggest thing that you've seen in how it's helped people's mental health? Um, I think I think it's probably awareness, Tom. To be honest, I think you know when I get people to just take a breath in for four seconds and out for six seconds, and then see how you feel when you get to six. People will always say oh, you feel you feel really relaxed at the bottom. 
why, why aren't doctors telling you to grieve like that? Then? Why are we not telling kids, teenagers, to, to grieve like this before we start lessons at school? And, mm. you know, I think it probably will go that way. The next two years is going to be massive on breath. Um, but in terms of us improving their health, it's allowing people's heads to connect back to bodies. I think I think today technology and science and and and, and these things, these devices, you know, these mobile phones and devices, are, uh, which are getting they're doing more and more things. We're, we're we're moving further and further away from recognizing even our own bodies, our our own selves. We're never connected to us. So when they come, when they come to do some work with me, I'm getting them to do exercises where they can constantly feel, and feeling is is really important. But not just the feeling, understanding what that feeling is, understanding what the sensations are, and for that you need to understand what your biochemistry is. You need to understand biomechanics. You need to know the difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. You need to understand what your body's doing when you're getting cold. It's not just a question of falling in, let it go, breathe, everybody's getting <laughs> cold. And, God. <laughs> understand what's going on in the yeah. body. Yeah, okay, that's that. Those are the pins and needles. Here's the tingles. Why the lightheadedness, the hypoxia, the hypercapnia? Know it. If you understand it, are we less likely to react to it? Absolutely, we are. Because mm. when we're having a panic attack, when the, fist, the tingling comes in the fingers and the hands, people instantly they start to hyperventilate. I'm, I'm having a panic attack. If you understand what it is, it's like, oh, okay, I know what that is. I, I used to sort of do it driving down the motorway, and the car would pull out in front of you or whatever, you get this rush of tingling down the body. Or if an animal walks out, but if you slam your brain, you get this tingles that goes all the way down your body. Your autonomic nervous system is rapid. It's got to be to save your life. But understanding the mechanism behind your adrenals and how that works, epinephrine, adrenaline, this is what we should teach kids at school. This is what they teach in the East. You know, that the children know how their bodies work, you know. Mm. And we should all understand before we learn about Henry VIII, we're not interested in Henry VIII. I'm sorry to history teachers and stuff, but <laughs> Henry VIII and, 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 and history of the country and, and, and you know, and, and algebra, and, yeah, it's all well and good, but we don't understand who we are. Exactly, yeah. As animals. I agree. Uh, we, we need to change that, Tom, you know. Mm. Otherwise, teachers like you who are, who are keen like this to understand it and, and have a good understanding of it. You know, kids in your class have probably got a better chance of knowing about it. There was a school I, I used to work in, um, and we used to, when they come in the morning, I noticed the behaviour was a little bit all over the place. It, nothing bad. It would they come in in the morning, and like everyone, they'd be on autopilot. You know, they were busy, they're rushing around, getting to school, getting to work, or all that, and they sit down, and they just be heightened. They weren't ready to settle down, so. And that, that's normal life. It's no exception. And we settled down and I just wanted to find a way that was just going to capture them and just 15 minutes of just relaxing. So we did this like guided meditation and all it was, was they listened to this YouTube clip of the breath 
and it was a child-friendly one and it go in then it goes out and it was just directing them to their feelings and that's that's like you said that's a lesson in itself learning your feelings learning to understand that and after a couple of days i learned so so much from that they were so relaxed after it you know some fell asleep which is fine but they were so relaxed they were so calm they were so ready they were so quiet and they were so present to it and they said i feel really good after that and it was just this moment you think like you said why isn't why isn't this taught <laughs> so and, and just by witnessing that you know children that fall asleep in in that kind of situation they have to be vulnerable to fall asleep yeah so they're allowed to express their vulnerability and be completely parasympathetic enough to leave themselves wide open mm. in an area like that with all them different children about something that they would normally only do in the presence of their own mother and father, their caregivers at home, that's a wonderful thing to happen at school. Mm. Just for the animal to witness that they can sleep in school, does that make the animal feel safer in the future at school if it doesn't? That's critical. So kids should be allowed to have a little bit of a sleep at school. You know, it, mm. it changes how they perceive their environment. Adaptation. It's a beautiful thing. And not only that, you can start to witness as, they, as they're meditating you can probably identify the ones with ADHD, first of all, because they, they will struggle to even give any attention to it. Mm -hmm. And at least then as a teacher, from a, a neuro-linguistic point of view, you can see the ones that are behaving and reacting and overreacting or not paying attention or irritating the others. You can, you can make notes of these children so we can help with their education. So meditation's got just so many different levels. It really does. No, it really does. I've, I've been reading uh, the book, How to Do the Work by an American psychologist. And she's got like this revolutionary new way of, of looking at psychology through holistic practices. It's not just cognitive, it's holistic. It's, it's all to do with the childhood. It's all to do with how you react to situations and what you can do to change your narrative, basically. So if you grew up in a, in a household where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on you, you got to be an overachiever because that's the only way that you wanted validation. And there's lots of different personality types and and ways that um you grow up and you you perceive different situations and there's one that you mentioned just there like say you're on the road driving and someone cuts you off you you automatically get a bit annoyed and you think oh you know i'm, I'm gonna cut them back or i'm gonna get them back and um she describes that as um not really leading with your ego but so many of us are just driven with our subconscious rather than our conscious state so she gets these practices and encourages people to do things that you do, like breath work and cold water to transfer from your subconscious state to your conscious state where you're actually not on autopilot and you're recognizing everything around you and realize when you're driving, when you're you're being governed by your ego rather, um, and when you're just going on autopilot and your subconscious. And it's so interesting how cold water and breath work does that. It's it's incredible. It is incredible. When you use them together, they'll regulate the nervous yeah. system. And if if you're if you're hypersensitive to environment and your nervous system is, is, is constantly sort of being drip-fed adrenaline, which is obviously connected to ADHD in kids as well, which I'll probably talk about a little bit. But if you can learn to regulate your nervous system by awareness and understanding of your own physiology, it's life-changing. It's completely life-changing. And there's just so much science behind carbon dioxide, apnea, and and um, amygdala-driven fear response. So there's, there's a good possibility that if we change the flexibility of our chemoreceptors, if we're less aroused 
by carbon dioxide uh, in the building up in the body that we're going to be less anxious. Uh, you know, anxious people hyperventilate, that they're over-breathing. In fact, in a recent study in America, they tested thousands of kids and 80% of children with ADHD were mouth breathers, snorers, in a recent study. And, and that I've got from uh, through uh, Patrick McKeown at the Oxygen Advantage. Uh, it's uh, the Botanical Clinic in Ireland. And I'm training again with him in February, and it's, you know, he's doing some amazing work, mm. uh, Patrick McKeown. Um, just absolutely fascinating. And it just all just brings alarm bells. You know, ADHD is so problematic, so problematic now with, with kids. These things are an absolute nuisance, these, these phones. <laughs> Yeah, they take you away. I, you know, I was talking to another guest on the podcast about how um, being on your phone is just so the norm now, even in a conversation, that it's so rare to have a conversation now with myself and you without a phone. You know, we'd be talking now 40 minutes or whatever, and no phone. And it's, you're more present, aren't you? And I think that translates it, it just into general life, really. You're more present in everything that you do. Um, so for anyone who's listening now who is really intrigued by what you just said, because I definitely am. I've read I've read that book I think you're talking about, um, but it was about three or four years ago, so I need need a bit of a recap. Mouth breathing, why is that so bad? Um, yeah, a lot of people ask me this, and, and mouth breathing isn't really bad uh, because you you know you can you can breathe well through your mouth. Yeah. Um, but as an animal, was as a mammal, we're supposed to be breathing through the organ, which is for breathing, which is the nose. And the nose, you know, performs about 20 or different functions in the body that uh, one scientist um, has, you know, has come out with. And it's your first line of defence against anything that's airborne for a start, you know, dust or particulates, um, um, airborne pathogens, um, don't, uh, like I say, dust, um, uh, cool, cold air, too, air that's too hot. It kind of cools the air as it goes into your lungs. It warms it. It moistens it. It, 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 as it goes into the nasal cavity, which is about the size of a snooker ball, a billiard ball, there's spirals and turbinates and flaps of skin and mucus and hairs, things that are designed to purify and pressurise air into the small air sacs of your lungs. You produce 15 to 20% more nitric oxide in your nasal cavity. And nitric oxide is a antiviral, you know, antiseptic, and it, it's a natural blood vessel dilator, so it dilates blood vessels in the lungs, which helps to improve gas exchange. So there's just so many reasons why we should be breathing through the nose. It it regulates the passage of air specifically designed for each individual human. It's it's fascinating. It is. We constantly breathe through the mouth for varying reasons over the last few hundred years. And if you read Breath by James Nestor, a lot of the answers are in there as to why we mouth breathe. You know, this is problematic. Talking, <laughs> we do that more than ever. Yeah. You know, if you look at the teeth of Neanderthals, they all had perfectly straight teeth, but they didn't have any dentists. But they chewed and chewed and chewed food on and off all day. They didn't really do any communicating. They were just making noises, so they think. But they also breastfed their mothers potentially up until the age of sort of six, seven, eight years old, maybe even longer. Who knows? So, um, you know, all this affects the shape of the upper palate, the mouth. And, um, you know, just breastfeeding alone 
can improve the shape of the maxilla, the length and the size of the upper jaw, just by just by breastfeeding. It's very different to bottle feeding, um, which is why you know bottle feeders have all allergies to get asthma, allergies, etc. Do you sleep with tape over your mouth? Because I've seen that's a regular practice with some people. Sure, I do every single night. I have done for it was done it probably took over 18 months of slept the tape on my mouth, maybe mm. even a bit longer. Um it, that was life-changing for me, Tom. Right? Was it? Because um, I was snoring all the time, and I was sm- snoring more when I was drinking, but even though I'd given up drink, I still sort of, you know, sleep mm. with my mouth open. As soon as I taped up, certain things started to change. You know, I was waking up feeling alert in the morning, and, you know, normally I was quite groggy in the morning. I was always constantly waking up with a dry mouth, and, you know, sometimes drinking water in the middle of the night as well. Um, and that kind of, after about three or four days, that stopped. And uh, and going to the toilet in the middle of the night, I was constantly up at three o'clock. That stopped. Wow. And I was, um, I was why is this? You know, yeah. Why have I stopped going to the toilet? What's that got to do with it? Um, and, I, I, you know, once I started to do a bit of homework on it, I, you know, spoke to some other Buteco instructors, and Patrick McGill. Uh, you, you produce a, a hormone in the body called vasopressin. Vasopressin is responsible for the distribution of fluid throughout your body through osmosis while you're asleep. And I think it's got to do with the fact that you're laid down rather than being stood up. So you need to produce more vasopressin at night. But if you're mouth breathing, hyperventilating, your body can't regulate your hormones all that well without oxygen. So without vasopressin, it just kind of dumps the fluid in your in your bladder. So you know, and as you get to sort of 30, 40, you're far more likely to snore and breathe through your mouth through stress at work, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all kind of interlinked. That's fascinating. I I hadn't a clue that was linked. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. So for anyone listening to this now who's maybe a bit of a novice with breath work and cold water exposure, you know, I, I talk a bit about cold water on here because I think it's life-changing. Since I started doing it two years ago, I've tried to do it every day. Um, got a bit annoyed because I missed a couple of days last year and it was like, oh, the ruined my perfect record. But I found it's just amazing. You know, like cold showers are really good, um, but I find every now and again, if I go hiking somewhere, no matter what temperature it is, I need to do it. I, I don't know. It's like this this instinct where it's like I'm not going to feel like relaxed or calm unless I go in that really cold lake. It's it's such a weird one. What? Why is cold water so life changing? Wow. Um, where do you start with that one? I mean, I think um, allowing the body to to get cold and then adapt in the cold afterwards is is, is doing some incredible things with the body. Obviously, the amazing. Mm. Wim Hof, you know, that amazing human being who's brought the Wim Hof method to the forefront um, and the cold water exposure as well. He, he obviously, you know, found it, you know, 30 odd, 38 years ago. Um, and he's been doing it a long time, which is why when he gets it to two degrees, he's just like, hey, come on in. It's <laughs> like, wow. You know, he's, he's, he's a really tough, resilient guy. But basically, the, 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 the cold water, obviously, People say to me all the time, oh, I have this affinity with water. I love water. I'm a Pisces. I'm an Aquarius. Uh, every human being feels an affinity to water because we need to drink. We're mammals. And we want to be near water. And generally, well, the body's 70% water. So we, we constantly need to be near water. 
however, you know, what it's doing in the body in terms of um, your, your vascular system is incredible. You know, it's opening up old blood vessels. And in this, you know, vascular system, there's about sort of, they think about 50,000 miles in every human body. And that's enough to go around the earth twice, they think. So from arteries, veins, blood vessels, capillaries, that's a long way for your heart to sort of pump blood. So if some of those capillaries and um, veins and blood vessels have become a bit dormant or they're not being used as much for varying reasons, sometimes hyperventilation is connected to that, cold hands and feet all the time, Raynard syndrome. Mm. Are they connected to respiratory health? They are in a, in a, in a lot of ways. If you read... The Breathing Cure by Patrick McKeown is the breath is connected to so much dysfunction. It's massive. But yeah, just the feeling that you get, obviously that release of dopamine that you get, then that prolonged hit of dopamine, you feel kind of quite sprightly and and, and in a good place for the for the rest of the day. It's, it's amazing what it's doing in the body. And what it's doing for your immune system is phenomenal as well. It's giving the, the body the ability to reset and adapt, um, it's, it's powerful. It's the reason, the fundamental reason why we exist is because our ancestors were absolutely freeze <laughs> You know, even close ancestors, you know, we think yeah. about central eating uh, in houses. You know, my grandfather used to strip wash in cold water every day of the year outside in his backyard, you know, and he lived to a ripe old age. He was fit and strong mm. and healthy. Um, and we, there's just so much more connected to the cold, really, in terms of resilience. Because if if you take your body into the cold and you're you're in control of your breath, and you're in control of the sensations and the burning on the skin, and you're you're sitting with that uncomfortableness, that resilience that you build up, that adaptation that you build up, in mentally and physically, you don't leave it in the cold. Mm. Your body takes it with you. You're carrying it along with you. So is that making you more resilient in rooms full of crowded people? If that's where you normally would feel anxious when you go into a lift or tight spaces. Is it changing how the animal adapts to difficult situations? It is, and it works, because uh, you start to feel less vulnerable. Yeah. God, that's so fascinating, all this stuff. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, there's like, so much untapped that there is out there so much untapped stuff sure there is and we know a lot but the body knows better you know millions of years of evolution you know if you go all the way back tom to you know, on a cellular level which is what we are trillions and trillions of cells in the human body if you go back to the very first cells of life on earth they were just the same vulnerability and safety for them just the same mm. you know, they they formed and there were certain chemicals and heats and temperatures that would make the cell vulnerable yeah so it had to adapt and the adaptation of the cell that has allowed us to be here now so let's look at that and mm. explore that in terms of what we are as, as animals and as an organism and, and the, the, the answers are there, you know, millions of years ago. It's the same thing, just a different version. 
And vulnerability is the key word there. Every time you try a new practice, your your mind's going to tell you, stop doing this, stop doing this. You know, you, what are you doing? Go back to the warm and comfort and safety. So, And, and that translates into life then with tough decisions or going out of your comfort zone. It's going to say, no, go back to the, the safety because you don't want to be vulnerable. Um, so what would your advice to be now? So people who are too afraid to pursue maybe an ambition or try something new because they're telling themselves, no, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I don't. And subconsciously, they just don't want to be vulnerable. What would your advice be to those people? Because I, I am. At, we've all been through that. We've all been through these similar things. What would your advice be? Well, as a man or a woman, you can do anything that any other man or woman can do as a given. You know, that is without a shadow of a doubt. The unfortunate thing about the mind is, is that it always wants you to be safe. Mm. The mind really just, the, 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 you go, the brain just wants you to sort of go forward and procreate, make other babies, spread your genetics and die, basically. Obviously, the human aspect of it, um, it's, it's a cruel system because that not wanting to go out and, and, and expand sometimes or go out and do anything that's a little bit sort of risky or whatever yeah. and go back to safety is, is, is the dopamine again. Oh, no, I'm not going to – I'm going to go back. Oh, yeah. I prefer the warmth, dopamine. I prefer the, like, you're probably – it's interfering with, the, with that system. Mm. The whole thing is sort of connected. So what I would say is, is that use the cold allow to allow yourself to sort of uh, allow some of the uncomfortableness to feel comfortable that's the key and that's why the cold is is a great tool because it's fashionably reliable because it's always cold <laughs> and and nature is exactly the same way that's why people feel quite held by nature mm. because we are nature itself and that's why oh, I just feel better when I'm in the forest or when I'm in the field, when I'm out in nature, when I'm walking out in the hills. You feel a connection to it. So going out and, and allowing yourself to be vulnerable is critical. And I think they use all sorts of analogies, but the, I think it's the king crab or the spider crab they use um, to, to explain that it has to shed its skin. It has to shed this hard exterior. To, to, to develop a new one and grow. But once it sheds its hard skin, it becomes fodder to all the other animals in the sea. So it's very vulnerable. But to be, to, to grow, you have to be vulnerable. It's, it's a given. And whatever that is and however that shows up, your vulnerability is the greatest source of your strength. And your vulnerability is the essence of what attracts you to other mates as well. People who are attracted to you, your husbands, the people that are listening now, your husbands and wives and partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, they're attracted to your vulnerability. Uh, which is why relationships sometimes, when they break down, some people find it very hard to get into another relationship because they won't allow that vulnerability to come out again as a human being. So... And you'll probably find that, you know, going back to the kids before when they're doing the meditation, the ones that feel vulnerable, they won't fall asleep because they won't ever allow themselves to get that vulnerable. The animal just feels interceptively a little bit frightened. Mm. So if we're completely accepting of our vulnerability, our ego, our shadow, if we understand how we work as animals and we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable in any situation with anybody, mm. It's only going to attract that kind of vulnerability back. People open up. 
And, you know, and this is obvious and evident when you when, when I work with other men as well, Tom, because, you know, the male ego is, is kind of running the world, really. Yeah. And it's awful. And I was trapped in my ego for so long. And I mean bad ego, you know, envy and um, envy, jealousy and narcissist tendencies and thoughts. Those, those thoughts, they, they, they still come in. You cannot avoid envy or looking at what other people have. I do it all the time. In my, my mind does it all the time. And narcissistic tendencies, I check them now and I know what they are. They're my shadow. It's me generally that. But I didn't always have the ability to, to know what that was. I used to think that was me. Mm. Whereas now I see it and I'm like, okay, I see. It's just your ego. It's just your ego again, yeah. Yeah. It goes like cholesterol, I think. There's <laughs> good and bad. You've got a good ego. Some some parts of your ego are good. A lot of people would disagree with me on this one, Tom, but there's good parts of your ego. Yeah. Because we all like to have praise. We all like to be told we're doing a good job. You know, we all like to get a pat on the back from the head teacher, doing an amazing job in that class with those kids. Parents come to you, you know. My, my little girl, my little boy, they absolutely adore you. They just absolutely love you as their teacher. That is arousing your good ego. Hmm. So are we supposed to put a stop to that? Absolutely not. Give me more of it. But you know where your bad ego is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it is like cholesterol. You know, you Exactly. No, it's it's incredibly interesting, you know. And another one is that I read it's 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 there to protect you, but it runs that fine line of, well, is it protecting you in the really important circumstances, or is it just protecting you when you feel a little tiny bit of discomfort and you run back to safety? It's it's a weird one. It's a hard one. It is a hard one. It is a hard one. And every human being, because of your DNA, we're absolutely unique. There are no two humans alike at mm. all either in genetics or in experience or consciousness. There aren't any. There never has been. There never will be. Mm. Not possible because everybody experiences, witnesses, tastes, sees, hears, smells. Their environment completely different. Every environment. Yeah. So it's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. Cataclysmic variety. Amazing. It is. I, and I, I love that you said that, that everybody is different and no two people are the same. Because I think sometimes and we go down a massive rabbit hole here, but a lot of people try and fit in in the wrong crowds and try and fit into a narrative that isn't them. And they're just going to have internal conflict if, if they do that. Sure. I did that for years and years. And did you? Trying to be the alpha or yeah. the guy and all this sort of thing. Tried that for so long. And, mm. you know, when I did the breathing, I kind of saw me, and, and this is me, you know. I'm far more in touch with my feminine than, than I think my masculine. Right, um, interesting, yeah. Because of, because of my upbringing. You know, mm. I had four sisters and my mum. My dad wasn't always around, you know. I didn't have any male role mm. model. He was working all the time. He was an amazing father. You know, I couldn't have asked for a better dad. I love my dad. Um, I love him dearly. He's an, he was an amazing father. But he just wasn't there as much as I needed him to be because he was always constantly working. He was doing the best that he could do at the time, mm. you know, in the, in the words of Gabba Mate and childhood trauma and all that. Yeah. You know? But I, I needed him a lot more than he, could, than he could give to me. So that did kind of affect me. 
sort of sort of growing up a little bit. So I, I struggled then to, to fit in with males. I was always comparing, am I good enough? And, you know, am I strong enough? Am I, you know, am I aggressive enough? You know, am I a warrior enough? You know, um, and that got me into serious problems. Right. And I think a lot of the time, even when I was drinking, yeah, I was kind of you know, drinking to sort of quiet down some of that uh, constant sort of fear of acceptance, um, you know, in that male, you know, silverback, alpha male kind of world, whereas I couldn't be any further away from it now. I, I, I can't stand all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's interesting how men put masks on or these protective shields just to just to hide the vulnerabilities. And sometimes you don't need to. Yeah, this is the thing you, you don't need to. In fact, as men now, we don't need to at all. Mm. You know, there seems to be you know a lot of it still out there, but we're not. You know, we're not crawling around. You know, fighting and rutting for women, uh, for females, for mates. You know. Sorry, you know, male and female. I don't want to. You've got to be so PC these days. But we're not, we're not rooting for, uh, for for mates anymore. Um, we don't have to fight for food or for work. Everything is quite plentiful. So let's let's adjust around that and let's just try and love and hug and hold and support one another as men. Yeah. And and it's okay. So right. mm. you know, the two most important words, I think, you know. Been talking to men is me too, because you know a lot of men we think well, it's only me that does that, it's only me that watches that, or it's only me that's done that in the past. That nobody else has done that rubbish. We've all done it, mate. Come here, you're all right. Mm. You know? Yeah, the world needs more people like you, honestly. No, well, it, it needs more people like us. We're like-minded guys, and we know. Yeah. There was mm. times in our lives that we probably didn't. You know, for a long time, I, I, I would have been one of the people saying, oh, you're this, you're this fool on Instagram. Oh, yeah, and all that big soft, you're soft lad and all that. Mm. I, I would have been one of those ones that was rejecting it because I was, mm. the, it was the, yeah. the, the barrier. The barrier up, yeah. So to finish, mate, we've got three quick fire questions. So usually done in like a sentence or, or whatever. So first one, what's the biggest lesson that you think you've had or been through? That's a tricky one. Mm. Um, just always be, always be yourself. Mm. That's, the, that's the, the biggest lesson I would say. Just always be you, heart and sleep. Yeah, I like that. Do you have any regrets? I do have, I do have regrets, yeah. I, I, re yeah. I regret really not remembering certain times with my children's childhood because of boots. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the last question. I read this in a book and I wanted to chuck them in this series of podcasts. And I think you're going to give a great answer. If you could change one thing about the world and society, what would it be? I would put females in charge. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't have male ego. Yeah. No, that's, I've never heard that answer. That's, that's spot on. Yeah. Spot on. Be in charge, spot on. Before we... <laughs> that's the New Zealand. Uh, boss sort of steps down apparently yeah 
yeah, I I get that. No, that's a great answer. I was um I was looking on your Instagram just before we started recording. I'm gonna flick through your posts and um I actually went on your booking system just to see like what you do, the work you do when you're available, and it's so easily accessible. So anyone who's prompted, I'm prompted, I might actually put myself in to be honest. Um, but anyone else who who fancies doing it and, and working with you, what's your Instagram? How can they get hold of you? Yeah, so if you go, obviously, I'm down as Breathalution, so Breathalution, not Breathalution, uh, on Instagram, uh, or you can go to Breathalution.com, um, and you can you can see a little bit of what I do on there. Unfortunately, I just don't have a lot of time to get to Breathalution.com, the website. I do it myself mm-hmm. through Squarespace. I don't get a lot of time to put much stuff on there, really. Uh, I would say that if anybody's really interested, send me a message, send me an email. Um, regardless of what it is, open up and ask the questions. There are no stupid questions. And whatever it is you think I've not heard in the last three years, I've heard it and seen it, witnessed it, and experienced it whilst doing this amazing work. Amazing. Like I said, there's, there needs to be more people like you doing this amazing work and spreading this great message. Kev, thank you so much for your time. I'm so humbled, mate. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening, folks. Okay, just before we finish the podcast today, I want to mention and thank this week's podcast sponsor. Nature Can is a carbon neutral, vegan friendly CBD and wellness brand founded by the ex-CEO of MyProtein, Andy Duckworth. Nature Can's mission is to help millions of people discover products that help them lead healthier and happier lives. From my own experience of trying the products, I found that the tinctures have massively supported my sleep and that overall feeling of calm. If it's your thing, go and check them out. Their website is uk.naturecan.com and use Tom15 for a discount.